Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, the podcast about comic books, uh, hosted by two brothers who grew up loving these comic books and still love these comic books and are now reading comic books and comedians performing on different sides of the country. I'm one of those brothers, Kevin Hines. And I'm the other brother, Will Hines. I'm in Los Angeles. Kevin is in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So adjust your expectations of our morals accordingly. Kevin is hardcore East Coast, rough and tumble, you know, uh, street smart guy. And I'm a Hollywood slick, making deals, no soul type of fellow. Yeah. I've been corrupted by the New Jersey mafia and Will has been corrupted by the Hollywood system. Yeah. So, two so we're both amoral, corrupt. That's important. Yeah. Two amoral psychopaths here to talk about comics. Um, today we have, a, we have a special episode uh, where we have a guest uh, Z Chun from uh, TKO Comics is going to be here to talk about some stuff he's done and a comic he loves, which is Batman Near One. Z, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. So uh, do you want to start with, let's start um, with just before you made comics. When, when did you get into reading comics? Was it a young age or uh, later on or what? Yeah, I think I got, I think the first time I was exposed to comics was at a Costco in <laughs> Massachusetts. They had the kind of bargain bin books. And one of the books was um, this big hardcover of just, I think it was um, like an encyclopedia of Marvel characters. And I picked that up and... I think I was probably maybe 12 or 13 years old, and I just kind of fell head over heels in love with Marvel and what they were doing and the superheroes in that universe. Um, I don't know what it says about me, but I got really into the Marvel handbook where I was just uh, looking at you know the stats of each superhero <laughs> and how tall they were and what their powers were. And I just found it fascinating that there was this you know mythology with thousands and thousands of characters uh, were all so different and all came from, you know, such different places. And then... Um, you, you fell off, you, you were a mechanical robot. You liked the numbers, the, uh, just the facts, man. Yeah, I just wanted to know what their, their batting averages were, you know. <laughs> yeah. You were, uh, you were into Marvel Comics for the organization of it. You liked how organized yeah. it was. The Marvel handbooks and the DC uh, who's who's were so popular with people. Uh, it is astounding to me how <laughs> like these just dry text pieces. They, so many people love those books. I was, just at a friend, I was at a friend's house a month ago and he's got all the Marvel handbooks. I think there were like two big editions of it. And he's got the second one. He's got like every issue, like in like Mylar plastic wrap. And I was like, why are you protecting the integrity? I mean, it's all just text inside. <laughs> I do think the people who made those books were just, they loved that stuff too. Like they were made from a place of love, not from a like, let's churn this out, which helped. But it is crazy that you're not the only one who I think who loved those. <laughs> Uh, they would get into like the pseudoscience justifying the powers. I remember how they said the human torch like most human beings create ADP, that is the name of a type of energy cell that human beings actually make, and that they just said that, oh, the human torch makes ATP, which is like the on-fire version of that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sure, right. 
a lot of cross sections of planes and cars, a lot of a lot of cross sections of oh yeah airs. Schematics are the best. Yeah. Okay, so that's how you get sucked in. Yeah, and um, you know the the comic book shops that I went to growing up were. Um, New England comics in Boston um, oh, and uh, Newbury comics and um, uh, million year picnic in Harvard square. Yeah. And I actually remember it was, uh, I, I think about this every once in a while, but I remember when I was like 13, um, I told my mom, I was really into comics and I wanted to be a comic book artist or a comic book writer when I got older and she was kind of like, okay. And then a couple days later it was a Saturday and she, you know, I woke up and went downstairs and she handed me um, a page from the yellow pages that she had uh, torn out. And it was a list of every single comic book shop in Boston. Hmm. And she was like, if you really like comics, let's go to all these comic book shops today. Wow. And we spent the day like driving around and we went to like Comicopia and there was, I mean, we went to maybe six or seven shops like. Wow. A couple different new, a couple different uh, branches of New England comics, which you know seemed a little redundant even to me at the time. Yes. But like it was, it was nice to know that she kind of supported me, you know, in that. Or she in that was path. trying to make you smoke an entire pack of cigarettes yeah. to yeah. get you to quit. It's kind <laughs> of the burn other. it out of you. Yeah. yeah. She goes, yeah. Once he's been to his fourth Newberry comics, he'll be sick of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that is very supportive and really nice. I uh, I find that. Um, uh, refreshing, I guess is the word. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember, were there any characters in particular that you gravitated towards? Like, did you have, who were your stories? Um, I started out with Spider-Man and then I, I pretty quickly jumped over to X-Men and X-Factor. I really liked the X-Books. Um, I think that, you know, I, I, there, especially the, the Chris Claremont, John Byrne run, um, Dark Phoenix Saga. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, those books really appealed to me. And I think part of it, and we get into it a little bit with um, Batman Year One as well, but, you know, they were so character-based and, you know, they were kind of like extended soap operas, except people had claws and could shoot, you know, beams <laughs> out of their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and that really appealed to me. I mean, the kind of the the big emotions and the, Feeling, feeling like an outcast, all those things really uh, spoke to me when I was that, that age. I mean, that's one of the prime X-Men eras, you know, Claremont and Byrne that like launched really the X universe, as, as, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, I, we were Spider-Man guys probably initially, and that's the same sort of thing, that soap opera of, you know, who's he dating? Is he getting picked on at school? How's his aunt doing? that's what drove you from issue to issue. And then like, also he's fighting the vulture in the sky and that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I like that we call it soap opera, but there's no soap operas where people are checking in on their ants as much as Peter Parker does. <laughs> but I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, what were the first books that you created yourself? The first books I created were recently. Um, they were the fearsome Dr. Fang um, which is a globe-trotting action-adventure story that takes place in the early 1900s. It's really pulpy. Um, it is about a San Francisco street cop and a treasure hunter named Alice who uh, pursue a Fu Manchu-style villain um, called the fearsome Dr. Fang. Mm -hmm. And what they discover is that Fang is actually um, a good guy, but putting on the guise of the bad guy in order to track down...
supernatural objects that threaten um, the world. So it's a big action adventure. The opening set piece takes place during the great San Francisco earthquake. Uh, I co-wrote it with my friend Mike Weiss. Uh, Dan McDade drew it. Um, Daniela Miwa did the colors for it. And it's published through my comic book company that I co-founded, TKO Presents. Um, And um, it was part of a first wave of books with um, Sarah by Garth Ennis and Steve Epting and Goodnight Paradise by Josh Dysart and Alberto Ponticelli, uh, who did Unknown Soldier. And I had a second book in that first wave of books called Seven Deadly Sins, which is um, a Western, uh, a brutal, bloody Western. Um, that's kind of a suicide squad uh, style uh, death row criminals from many walks of life um, signing up to go into Comancheria. Uh, both of those are sort of big pulpy genre stuff with their own tropes and archetypes and stuff like that and adventure stories. What draws you to that? Well, I started out in independent film. So I, you know, after doing, after wanting to be a comic book artist and a comic book writer for many, many years uh, in my teens, um, at some point in my teens, I got interested in independent film. And I basically said to myself, well, you kind of have to pick one of these two really difficult things to pursue. And so I picked independent film. Um, and I, I had a couple movies that I wrote and directed that premiered at Sundance. Um, and then I directed, a, I wrote and directed a, a thriller starring Brian Cranston called Cold Comes the Night. Then I moved into doing more television. Um, and part of the move into television was, you know, I was making these kind of smaller indie features and, I felt like when you could get people into the theater to watch it or get people to stream it, um, you know, the reviews were great and people always really liked the movie, but it was kind of hard. It was a little bit like giving people medicine. And I mm-hmm. kind of felt like I wanted to, you know, put the message within a genre shell because, you know, people like genre stuff. They love action, thriller, yeah. horror. Um, and so as I started to move into doing television, I started to do more genre work. So I sold an action show right when I got out to LA. And then I wrote for Once Upon a Time, which is, you know, a big fantasy show for ABC. Yeah. I was there for two years. Then I, uh, then I was a writer producer on Gotham <laughs> for three years. Um, so I got to end that show um, as, a, as a writer and a producer on it, which was really fun. I mean, I got the job because I, it was actually the script for Seven Deadly Sins, my Western, that got me that job. Yeah, and I kind of pitched it as, well, Seven Deadly Sins is kind of like a Western from the bad guy's point of view. And Gotham, you know, you spent so much time with the villains of that show. Yeah. I was really suited to write it. And I also told them that I was a Batman guy. Like, you know, um, you know, obviously we're going to talk about Batman year one, but, you know, the early 90s Legends of the Dark Knight where, you know, sometimes Batman's not even really in the story or that he's only in you know, two or three panels or a page of it. And I found that, I found that Gotham was such an interesting place. The villains were so interesting. I was excited to be able to explore essentially Gotham before Batman got there. Yeah. When you've got such strong um, villains and supporting characters, the main character is gravy. Batman is gravy to the Batman story. That's why things like Gotham Central did so well and Gotham, could do such cool things like with the penguin, just like taking him in a new direction, but he's still the penguin. I mean, that's enough to carry a show. It was like crazy how uh, interesting all that stuff could be. Not me, man. I don't like the Batman villains. I think it should just be Batman and his 
I'm interested in the Bruce Wayne side. I want the finances. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to know the investments, the charity work. Mm-hmm. The villains have always been the weak side of the Batman universe. Yeah. To me. You're looking for investment tips mostly when you read Batman comics and the movies. And I don't, <laughs> and I feel pretty shortchanged. Yeah. Z, what's so, uh, what do you like about writing comics as opposed to writing for TV? I mean, I, I kind of like, I mean, the reason that I kind of moved between film and TV and comics is that they all kind of scratch a different itch. Like, Movies, you know, if we're putting them together independently, you have a lot of creative control over stuff. But at the same time, you know, every time you make a movie, you're really, it's an uphill battle. It takes forever. You're kind of like, a lot of times because they haven't really created a investor class of people who work on independent films, you kind of have to like teach people what making a movie means every time you make a movie. TV, I like that there's a schedule that if you're working on something, you pretty much know that it's going to come out at a certain time. Yeah. But with both film and TV, there are certain parameters where you're, you know, there's production parameters, there's things about Yeah, budget. how much you have to compromise your vision all the time, I would think. And notes exactly. in the studio, and there's just a lot of cooks no matter what you do. In comics, what I like is, that, I mean, it's a very intimate process in a lot of ways. You're writing your script for two people, you know, your yeah. editor and your artist. And the fact that we were able to do the opening set piece of To Fearsome Dr. Fang during the great San Francisco earthquake, you know? Yeah. Uh, we had had a meeting with a producer about that project. And the, the first thing they said was like, wow, that seems crazy expensive. And we were like, okay, well then yeah. we'll just not do it with you and we'll just do a comic book. Yeah, it sounds, uh, even when you were describing it, it sounds uh, expansive, uh, uh, right away. It's just huge. Uh, that seems like a lot going on in the fearsome Dr. Fang. Uh, and that's definitely a place where comic books, the, you know, the artist's talent is your only limit and, uh, they're generally so good. And if you're working with Dan, Dan McCade did, uh, Dr. Fang. Yeah. Dan, Dan McDade. Yeah. I mean, he's so good that there's no limits. <laughs> um, one of the things that we do at TKO, you know, we, we have a different business model than other companies. We, yeah, I was going to ask about this because I think this is really interesting. We, we, we binge release our, our books. So um, when we launched our first wave and you know, eventually when we launched our second wave with titles with, by Jeff Lemire and Roxane Gay and Gabriel Walta and Ming Doyle, like, we always binge release them. So um, all six issues of the first arc were available the second that the first issue became available. Hmm. And that was because we were a new company and we wanted to make sure that people knew that we had staying power. But also, you know, I don't think people like to wait for a month or, you know, it, you know, fingers crossed a month, you know, sometimes yeah. with non-Marvel yeah. and DC books, it can be, a, you know, two or three months between issues. You know, in the age of Netflix and Amazon and streaming, you're just, people are not accustomed to waiting. And in order to get new readers to comics, we wanted to try something new. So, we binge release our books. We also release the books in multiple formats at once. So we release an oversized trade paperback and oversized six issues in a collector's box set at the same time, along with digital. And then we also have the first issue to read for free of every one of our books at tkopresents.com. And we found that that um, really allowed us as a new company to make a big splash, you know, to do kind of everything different in terms of the distribution model. Definitely feels like by having them already, it's easier to give away that first issue where it's not like that's all we have and we're giving it away. We're killing our yeah. first issue sales. Instead, it's like, uh, here's that first issue. Here's the taste. Here's the first episode, which like you see sometimes happen. I don't know if it happens as much anymore, but 
uh, there used to be like, you get the first episodes on iTunes for free, hoping that you'd then tune into the channel or, or, uh, buy, buy future episodes. I think that's great. Streaming services will do it. Like Hulu will have like a show and the first two episodes are streaming for free, but then you got to subscribe to Hulu to see the rest or something like that. Do you see, uh, between the, I I mean, I'm a trade paperback guy now in in my forties, just for, just for, uh, shelf reasons but do you see like one is way more popular than the other is like digital way or do you even know i guess is it too soon um, digital is always a smaller section mm-hmm. um, i mean that's kind of across the board in the comic book industry it's like 10 percent. i think for comic book people i mean i i feel it the same way it's like you know once in a while i'll, I'll download something digitally just because i want to read it right away but i almost always buy everything that i like in in print and maybe that's just because I still have that collector's mentality. You know, we find that our trade paperbacks and our box sets, they sell about even, which I think all of us were kind of surprised about. It might change. We just did a big deal with um, Ingram PGW um, to be in the book market. So we'll be in a thousand bookstores, uh, you know, between Barnes and Nobles and independent bookstores by the end of the summer. And I think there we'll probably do more trade paperbacks because sure. well, those are book readers. So they're, yeah. they're, they're more accustomed to yeah. to buying that in that format. Well, if you had, if people are listening to you like, Hey, this guy's great. I'm going to pick something up right now. What do you, when do you want them to start with? I think, you know, any of the TKO titles, you know, TKOpresents.com. Um, there's eight titles to choose from right now. My books are the fearsome Dr. Fang and the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, we're really proud of the creative teams. Um, our book sentient by Jeff Lemire and Gabriel Walta was just uh, nominated for an Eisner award for best limited series. Um, it's only the third time I think in the Eisner history that a first year company has been nominated. You know, we're, we're really proud of the books. We love every single one of them. And I don't think you can go wrong if you, if you pick up one of them. There's something about like indie media companies. That's so exciting. There it's a, everything's a passion project. Like, the, and you can feel it in the work I find. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I still really love about comics is, you know, I think as a new company, you know, the fact that we were able to get Garth Ennis and Jeff Lemire and um, Roxanne Gay, you know, I think part of it came from the fact that, you know, we, we, we basically told them that we had a new business model and we were doing it because we wanted comics to expand our readership and we love comics. And I think that that message you know, it, it made a big difference for people. And I think, you know, listen, having worked in film, especially like there's a lot of people that are in it because they want the fame or the glamour or the fortune. And yeah. to me, comics, like it's very refreshing. Like nobody does it for the money. They do it because they love the art. Film. It's also such a, uh, an industry that kind of ebbs and flows so much that if people aren't trying to find new ways to get these products out there. It's just, it's going to become like this little niche uh, market. That's just sort of undercurring the big budget movies or whatever. And we don't want, no one wants that to happen. Comics are never going to go away completely, but if people aren't trying things like what you guys are trying, I don't think it's going to ever uh, have that next big flow. Um, and I think that stuff is really great. I should yeah. also mention that, um, uh, we have a discount code, so if people do want to try these comics, we can mention it now and at the end. Yeah. Um, so if you go to TKO Presents when you're buying stuff, you can use the discount code SCREWIT20. 
Ooh, um, Rick, so, we're part of the discount code. That's so exciting. <laughs> that's right. Oh my so gosh. can use that and get a discount uh, and try some of these books. Also, as, as you said, you can try all the first issues for free and decide which ones you want to buy. And I'd recommend that because well, uh, okay. that's great uh, being anybody, able to do that. Anybody listening to this podcast is a huge comic book fan. And I think all comic book fans, we love indie companies and, the, and passion projects. And you have such huge names that really you're, you're, yeah. a, you're melding comic book wise, big, big name stuff and indie stuff. So that sounds pretty cool. I'm proud to have our name in that discount code. <laughs> yeah. Make us proud fans. Get some stuff from TKO presents. Um, um, let's take a break and then come back and dig we'll into come back and we'll do Batman, Batman year one. Yeah. So we'll take a break right now. We'll be back in mere seconds. Hey, it's us again, your hosts, Kevin and Will Hines, and we want to hear from you. That's right. You can email us at screwitspidey at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at screwitcomics. We also have an Instagram account where we post images from the comics that we talk about, and that's screwitcomics on Instagram. That's three different ways to connect with us. Tell us your thoughts about the issues we're talking about or the format of the show or our life choices that have led us to this point. Reach out and tell us anything, honestly, and we might talk about it on a future episode of this podcast. Thanks for listening to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. And uh, welcome back. Uh, uh, we're here with Z Chun of TKO Comics. So let's let's get into what we brought you on here for, Z, which is to talk about the comics that you loved, especially comics that we loved when we were younger. We're going to get into Batman Year One, which, in my opinion, and I think everybody's opinion is one of the coolest superhero comics that's ever been made. I think this is just one of the ones that blew everybody away when it came out and it has not dropped in its critical standing at all. It is one of the comics when people ask me to lend them a comic if they've never read a comic, it's almost always my first go-to, but the only problem is sometimes they're like, Oh, I'd love to read something else as good as this. I'm like, "Uh Oh, good luck. (laughs) I started off with like one of the best things ever. What do you, what do you Uh, love about this? What do you, what made you pick this? Um, well, first of all, I just want to say that this is a comic that I probably I probably own this comic in the most formats of any. <laughs> I have the single issue. I have multiple versions of the trade. I don't understand even how I have multiple versions of the trade. I have the um, absolute edition, which is actually really wonderful because um, it's two volumes, and one of them is Richmond Lewis's um, new colors that she did for the trade. And one of them is a replication of the um, newsprint version of it um, on newsprint paper. And so you can see the difference in the colors and how she was able to color it within the narrow spectrum on newsprint, but also as moving into trade, how she adjusted those colors. Oh, that's exciting. Um, I love that stuff. I think that for me, you know, as a, I think I was probably 13 when I picked this up. And it was the first Batman or first superhero that I saw that had level of grit. And part of it comes down to just the acting. You know, if you look at the book, what's remarkable about it is, I mean, there's probably 15, 20 pages of this 90 pages where Batman's even wearing a mask. It's really about the characters. And you're, you're watching the formation of the two most important people in the Batman mythology, James Gordon and Bruce Wayne, just from a storytelling point of view. And we'll, but just the amount of story that Frank Miller is able to pack into such 
a short miniseries. The fact that he's able to tell two separate heroes' journeys in these short amount of pages is, is to me just remarkable. Now, I'm going to give a little context for this issue, and you guys both correct me if I, because I usually get this a little wrong. So this is the story of sort of the origin of Batman. Frank Miller is the writer. Dave Mazzuchelli is the artist. And as Z said, Richmond Lewis is the colorist. This came out, I forget what year, 86 or something. The important thing is Frank Miller was coming off of just having done The Dark Knight Returns, his four-issue story of Batman in re- coming out of retirement, taking place in the future. And that, of course, was a nuclear explosion level hit in the comics industry. So he's, this is like his second big Batman story. But he drew Dark Knight Returns. Of course, I love it with Klaus, Klaus Jansen doing the inks and his ex-wife Lynn Varley doing the colors. Dark Knight Returns, of course, is a masterpiece. Uh, Dave Mazzuchelli was an artist that he first worked with, I think, on Daredevil. And Mazzuchelli was like much newer in his career. Frank Miller was the established big gun and Mazzuchelli was like the young artist. But I think that this established Mazzuchelli as one of these guys, oh, he's as good as anybody who has done it. They did a series in Daredevil called Born Again, which also is one of like the landmark herald. Th- Mazzuchelli's art is great. That's what I'm trying to say. When this book came out, it was like the story is, oh, Frank Miller's doing another Batman story. Yes, that's part of it. But also we look back and say like, oh, it's the second big Mazzuchelli arc after Born Again. And I, I kind of go back to Mazzuchelli's art. I mean, I, I love Miller's writing also, but it's Mazzuchelli's art that blows me away when I look through this story. And it's why I recommend this even over Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. Just, this no is, disrespect to Dark Knight Returns. I prefer this to Dark Knight Returns too. It's It's simpler and just cooler and... It's crazy to me that this was released in the Batman issues, not as like its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that set this up as its own mini series. It was just like, ah, oh, this will just be yeah. Batman issue number whatever. I'm like, what? it was just too good. <laughs> it was just four issues of the comic. You just bought them as like little single issues. I mean, I think that for a new reader getting into comics, I mean, Dark Knight Returns was so mind-blowing because it took a lot of that Batman mythology and turned it, it on its head or pushed it to its maximum volume for lack of a better term but just as the as a you know if you're new to comics and and want to see something really character driven i I think this is this is really second to none we're we're gonna go through page by page some of these faster than others let's start with page one and let's so what we have to do here z and this is really weird kevin and i made the dumb decision to have an audio format talk about a visual medium so we have to say what's on the page and then what we like about it Great. Uh, I'll do the first one, but feel free to interrupt. We, we open on a train entering Gotham City, and there's a headline that says January 4, and we are going to start the story on Jim Gordon, who's coming to his job at Gotham City. And if you can read this series and not love Jim Gordon, I don't understand who you are, because this is just a love letter to Jim Gordon. He's so it's, cool in this. It's the definitive Jim Gordon, as far as I'm concerned. This this explains how we should think of him as a character. Even on the, this first page is already so beautiful. Like just the composition, how much information, each panel is both economical and expansive. It tells exactly what we need to know, but then there's extra little details that do so much. I think the body language also for the first two pages, I mean, even the first page, the first time you see J- James Gordon he's in the second panel he's just kind of wedged into the background mm-hmm. and you're seeing him among a couple dozen commuters you know on a train as he's entering Gotham for the first time in the third panel he's just kind of holding his head and just the face acting on Jim Gordon alone like oh yeah I think the I think that act I mean going back to 
you know, the Phoenix saga and John Byrne, like, you know, I think the face acting, this is something we talk about a lot at TKO Presents is, um, you know, when we're doing these character driven stories, just making sure to find artists that can really make the characters feel human. You know, it doesn't matter if they're, it doesn't matter if the artist can have somebody levitating in midair, blowing something up, you know, as long as we can have somebody who can really capture what a character is going through in a panel. Yeah, we're just coming out of talking about Justice League International, and uh, that's all Kevin McGuire's facial expressions and stuff like that. Uh, it's so much how they look more than what they can do, because that's that whole book. This page also introduces us to great Frank Miller dialogue, which is also just like the most hard-boiled detective novel tone. The opening words are Gotham City, and then a new box. Maybe it's all I deserve now. I mean, I'm already in love with this book. And then the third <laughs> sentence, maybe it's just my time in hell. And there's this gritty, beaten up train driving, driving it, pulling into Gotham. And then the bottom of the page, we juxtapose from Jim Gordon, who's thinking when his wife, Barbara, uh, when she comes in, she's going to fly in. I don't want her to see how terrible this all looks on the train. You know, in an airplane from above, all you see are the streets and buildings, fools you to thinking it's civilized. And then we cut to a plane which has Bruce Wayne on it. And Bruce is thinking, I should have taken the train, which is also just great. <laughs> Yeah, I should be closer. I should see the enemy. Like he's already a nutcase right here on the first page in a great way. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, what's so great about this page and what's so great about the series is exactly what you're saying, where you're contrasting the two different point of views of these two men who are really make up the heart of crime fighting in Gotham. Jim Gordon, who is that street level cop in this, in this story, mm -hmm. and Bruce Wayne, who is... You know, he's a he, he's just starting along his journey and all he wants to do and he'll get into it in this in this in this issue. But all he wants to do is be on the streets. He wants his, to begin his war on crime. He's not yet Batman, but he knows what he wants to do. Second page, we keep the contrast between Jim Gordon and Bruce Wayne. We see Jim Gordon muscling through a crowd on the platform and he's greeted by Flass, who we're going to learn is a corrupt cop, which is a detective, which is typical of the Gotham police force. We're about to find out. And we also see Bruce arriving in the airport to a bunch of reporters who want to interview him about his glamorous life. Uh, yeah, Flash is such a great character, um, such a great villain. It's like, like Z says, it's character driven. Like Flash is almost a fully formed character right away. A smarmy, corrupt, dirty cop, big smile on his face. And uh, Bruce also, you know, Bruce is a character. Like Batman is playing the part of Bruce Wayne. It's not his real personality. But we see him playing up for the cameras at the bottom of page two. The thing that I find, I mean, first off, is like exactly about Flash. Like in the second panel after he's introduced, <laughs> he's strangling somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's taking a Harry Krishna and just choking him out, you know, in order to get him out of his way. Yeah, walk skinhead. Um, he's just like this super aggressive jerk. But like you, you know, even looking at the amount of words on the page, it really feels, I think it really takes a master, you know, two masters to three masters, including the colorist, like, and the letter of four to have this many, num this many words on a page and have it feel so effortless, you know, yeah. um, the world building in these two pages alone is just incredible. Yeah. I mean, I've been reading comics my whole life and sometimes you open a, pa a page and if it's too many words, you're just sort of like, uh, I'll read this later. And you don't have that problem with Batman year one. It just, you're still pulled in to all the pictures and the words are so, I think it's just somehow it's the way it's laid out to the small caption boxes, the small word balloons. It feels easy to read. It doesn't feel overwhelming. Page three, we get into 
Gordon is going to meet the current commissioner. Gordon, who we know will become the commissioner, meets the meets the um, current commissioner, who is extremely corrupt. <laughs> and Batman arrives to his Wayne Manor to talk to Alfred. And we get so much story on this on this page three here. Uh, we learn that Gordon had some kind of corruption happen at his old job, and that he's kind of been forced into this job. It's kind of a bum gig for an otherwise talented man. It's the only place that'll take him, right? Uh, and we, and again, just like Flass, the current commissioner, Commissioner Loeb, this is before Jeff Loeb started doing comics, right? Is that a coincidence? Mm, is it before? I don't know. Seems like a weird coincidence. It's been around so long. I, saw, I lose track of when he started. Well, just like Flass, uh, Commissioner Loeb is completely corrupt, uh, established as a villain immediately. Uh, I, that's one thing I love about pulpy stories is they make no bones about who the good guys and the bad guys are. Also, isn't it weird that Commissioner Loeb has all this pop art? He's got like peanuts and like Disney. I mean, he—you could tell that a comic book artist, <laughs> I think, decided that his characters are also fans of visual art. Isn't that a strange choice? It is. It's, uh, he's got a Snoopy lamp. I don't think of a corrupt police commissioner as having a Snoopy lamp. I love these little details of him of him eating uh, eucalypt, eucalyptus cough drops. You know. There's, yeah. There's so much detail in here that you can almost smell. It's 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 really incredible. He seems he's so hateable. Just <laughs> I look at him, I'm like, oh, I don't like this guy. Same with Flash. Like you look at those guys, you don't like them even before you know they're bad. Which I think uh, is great. And I also just love. I mean, I I know I keep going back to the face acting, but the last panel of Low, and you can tell very difficult. I think for I mean, even just he's so small in the frame. Loeb is, but you can tell he's. He's saying one thing, but he means another. And that kind of that kind of acting is really, I mean, the specificity of that acting really brings us to another level. Uh, I love calling it acting. I've never thought of that before, but that is exactly what it is. Yeah. Everything he says has got like a double meaning. Uh, your record shows you've got what it takes. He's talking <laughs> about like the fact that you're corrupt is good. Um, not saying like, oh, you've done good work. So I think you'll, you know, we got to steal here, which is the other way you could take it. And then Bruce arriving home, stepping out of his limo up to the up to Wayne Manor. His internal uh, monologue to himself is so crazy, so constantly dramatic, and I, which I love, by the way. I'm saying crazy as a compliment. Like I love how heightened the personalities are. He looks at his childhood home and thinks Wayne Manor, built as a fortress, generations past, to protect a fading line of royalty from an age of equals. <laughs> like. Who, my own internal monologue is not so dramatic. I can assure you guys. Should be. Uh, Here's should my be, apartment built yes. uh, 10 years ago because of uh, <laughs> an increase of residents moving to Los Angeles. Built perfunctorily according to the most minimal creative thought uh, and was deemed good enough by a series of people. Um, but I also love that Mazzuchelli's panels, they work, they're beautiful to look at at first glance. And then also if you dig in, there's like the stories being told at every level. And right now we're contrasting Bruce's wealth compared to the kind of crummy uh, life that Jim Gordon is is uh, is leading. Yeah, every panel for Bruce so far has had like a lot more room around him and space and, and everything around Gordon is claustrophobic. Page, I guess it's page five. I, I was doing the numbers wrong. Uh, page five of the comic, we see Flass and Gordon on patrol and we see that Flass just likes to beat the crap out of people for no reason. <laughs> and Gordon can't do anything about it, even though he's not that kind of guy. Uh, I love the moment where he says, I watch, I don't do a damn thing, and I memorize every move for future reference. It's like, oof, what a great foreboding line. I'm already excited for Jim Gordon to break out and 
wreak and and have his vengeance on all this corruption. Like it's yeah. we're right at the beginning of the story, and I cannot wait for the explosions that I know are coming between these personalities. I think one of the things that's fun having now uh, written comics is looking at the work of these masters and being like, yeah. and one of the things about this page in particular is, you know, I think it's hard once you get to seven panels to not make a page look crowded, but the amount of visual uh, variety within the panels, meaning like you're, you're looking at a, uh, an extreme close up in the, in the very last frame with Jim Gordon's eye as he's taking in Flask. You're seeing, you know, a wide shot in the third panel of Flask walking up to these punks and there's just, you know, and, and even so, like, there's also a lot of dialogue and a lot of narration on this page, but it, again, feels really effortless. And the eye just kind of goes through the page, absorbing the story and not having to work. Uh, I, I totally agree. Yeah, it's like, and also you can see Flass's personality when he's sauntering up to beat him up. He looks happy. I mean, the guy looks like a bully. We talk about acting, <laughs> but uh, Mazzuccelli is portraying his bully every panel. He's flash smiles in like every page, no matter what he's doing. And I hate him for it. He's got, he's got good smugness. Uh, the yeah. next page flash is showing that he found a knife on the guy that justifies his beating, but it's only a comb. Gordon points out he could care less Then a nice little beautiful panel of Bruce, just at the graves of his parents, this like empty kind of almost like a breath, a pause in the middle of all this chaotic exposition. I mean, it still shows that Gordon was sort of thrust into this role and Batman is preparing and taking his time and entering this role. There's still such contrast. You need them both to save Gotham, but uh, they're coming from such different directions. The bottom half of this next page says February 12th. So we're a month ahead of, the, of where Gordon arrives and it's still Gordon and Flass. Patrol and Flass makes it clear that Gordon has started to fight back against the corruption and make some noise. And Flass is trying to check him and almost and threatens him. Yeah. And you even see Gordon pushing back a little bit, right? Because he goes, call me Lieutenant. It's the first time he's, he's like, don't call me Jimmy, uh, is basically what he's saying, uh, which he didn't push back against a month ago. Well, after a threat, right? Flass says, mm-hmm. uh, you'll never make it in this business if you don't learn to relax, Jimmy. We got our own way of doing things here in Gotham. I mean, you came down pretty hard on Morgan. I mean, you with a baby on the way. He's basically threatening the man's child. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, this book does not waste time. On, on who the on who the bad guy is. Next page, it's really important. Uh, the first date is my birthday. I always think that when I read this comic. And <laughs> I think that's what they were trying to do. I think they were they knew that and they were playing to you specifically, Kevin. I kind of think uh, for my birthday, Bruce Wayne is smashing some rocks and some trees, and it's it's nice to know that he's taking my day to to do some yard work, <laughs> and I like that. So this is pre-Batman Bruce Wayne just shoving his fist, his hand through a brick wall and then like knocking over an oak tree with his kick. Yeah. Can you kick down a tree with your foot? Can anyone do that? Is that uh, I don't possible? know. I, I, I'm not, I think even if you got Olympic level athletes, they would have trouble with an oak tree. But I guess if you lived your whole life with vengeance in your mind, you're strong. And then the bottom of this page, Flash is complaining to our corrupt commissioner. They're already fed up with Gordon. Like they know now that he's going to push back against corruption and they got to squeeze him out. Yeah, they got the wrong guy. Man, I remember reading this for the first time and just devouring this book, like just gobbling it up like candy. This is the sort of book that because we're going over it now tonight, I'm going to read the whole thing again just because I can't start it and not finish it. Uh, we move into the next page where uh, Bruce Wayne is beginning to start his fight against crime. He doesn't need to have the Batman costume. He puts a disguise on his face. He's in a parking garage in a car and he's just doing his, he's going to do what eventually is normal for Batman, just patrolling the streets, looking for criminals to 
punish. <laughs> Uh, and he also, it also happens to be the, is it the same place where Gordon, no, it's a different, he and Gordon are in different places. Yeah. And it, it cuts away somewhere else. Gordon's just in the parking garage. Uh, so they're still leading separate lives in parallel. Yeah. Bruce is in some parking garage getting ready to look for trouble. And then Gordon is in a different place where a bunch of people jump him and beat the crap out of him. I Oops. think it's, I mean, one of the things that I find, you know, uh, having worked on something like Once Upon a Time, where you're really jumping around yeah. you know, with the different storylines, I mean, one of the things I find so interesting about this book is that whenever Frank Miller cuts between Gordon and Wayne, there's always kind of a thematic connection, even if it's not um, immediately apparent. It's like on this page, Bruce Wayne is looking for trouble, and down below, trouble comes looking for. Jim Gordon. Yeah. And it's these little subtle things where when you're reading it, and certainly when I was 13 years old, I, I never gave it a second thought, but there's kind of a, a reason why reading it, even though we're really jamming a lot of story into, I mean, we're on page eight and we've gone through three months of Jim Gordon and Bruce Wayne's life in Gotham and 30 issue it, run by Brian Bendis. No, I'm not uh, yeah. But it, it reads so easily. Because of that. It is, yeah, both dense but somehow fluid. It's really impressive. There's also little nice human moments. Uh, Gordon, when he gets out of his car right before he gets jumped, thinks, requested off this night shift four times now. Damn it, Barbara needs me at night these days, Barbara and little James. So I hope it's a boy. So what? Like even like just a little chauvinism from our guy humanizes him a little bit, like just that extra little detail. He's more than just the man of integrity. He's, he's got flaws. He smokes. He's going to end up cheating on his wife in this series. He's a little bit of a chauvinist. Uh, I like the imperfections. I mean, it, it makes, yeah. I don't want all my characters to be squeaky clean. I, I, I want them to have a little grime on them. It makes it more compelling somehow. I mean, in sort of the same way that I think right now, Batman thinks he's got it hard and he's doing it, but it's like, he's got it way easier than his counterpart. Uh, and then the big reveal is, so Gordon gets jumped as a cool little fight, cool comic book wise, fight sequence where Gordon just gets pummeled by four guys with baseball bats. And then Gordon hears one of them laugh and knows it's Flass. So these are cops dressed up as thugs to send him a message to stop fighting corruption in the Gotham Police Department. But it's done so dramatically, right? That last panel, toward the end, I hear a familiar chuckle. And then in a caption all by itself, Flass. Ooh. Great the lettering. The lettering, and I mean, the decisions that they made in terms of placement and everything, really. It also helps you have vets like, you know, Miller had to done Daredevil comics for years at Marvel, and he evolved his, like, caption style of writing on Daredevil comics. So he's using tools he built elsewhere. I got to think this book was sort of uh, the, the death knell to thought balloons, which are so rare now in comic books because like you just don't need them in this book and it would feel so weird to have them in this book. You don't see them very often. Sometimes really? you do. In books now when they do it, it's a choice and it's interesting. Cap but it was such a were... uh, standard issue thing before. Well, captions really make it feel more like a book, like you're reading a detective story. When you're into those captions, you get all the pulpy purple prose of a, of a detective story mixed in with the beautiful Mazzuchelli art. I mean, this book is on fire. It's incredible. Uh, next panel, we see Bruce just <laughs> walking through the most corrupt neighborhood in human history, uh, <laughs> looking for criminals. And he's just dressed as a as a guy. He's just got like a knit cap on, a fake scar he put on his face. And just like any Frank Miller story, 
however corrupt you think your city is, Frank Miller is going to make a city 10 times as corrupt. So to help justify <laughs> vigilante Batman as a good guy. Yeah. Uh, uh, New York in the eighties, which I, we are aware of, or like I was in Hamburg, which is like a pretty uh, dense red light district. And it's like, those places look like Disneyland next to the street. There's about 100 porn theaters in a one block area. There's 10 <laughs> drug pushers. There's a prostitute who looks maybe 10 years old at the bottom of this page. I mean, it's, it is ramped up, the, the crime here. Yeah, and that's Holly, uh, Catwoman's friend. Yeah, she's going to... Uh, looks like it might just be a side character for the sequence, but we're meeting one of the characters of this story. Holly, that Catwoman is going to adopt and protect. The pimp, who looks like he got his costume right from Central Casting. I mean, he is a 1970s pimp. Tells Holly, Bruce basically is talking to Holly, trying to maybe trying to sniff out who he's going to beat up to protect her. And the pimp can tell that Bruce seems like he doesn't fit in and tells Holly to get away from him because uh, he seems like Vice or a cop. Uh, that that a pimp looks like a Dick Tracy villain for sure. <laughs> the Wrinkle or something yeah, like yeah. that. Also, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't mean to glamorize like gratuitous violence or anything like that. But when I was a kid, I think I was like 12 or 13 when I read, no, I was... 16 or 17 when I read this the first time, I was thrilled at how gritty Frank Miller books are. Like I got suckered in by just how, this was not like Reed Richards working on a new laser gun. This is like, we're talking vice squad, prostitution, drug dealers. I mean, Pulp Fiction is forbidden and thrilling for, not Pulp Fiction, the Quentin Tarantino movie, but the genre of Pulp Fiction Mm -hmm. is thrilling. I loved how gritty these books were. Like they absolutely cast a spell on me. Um, even though Bruce Wayne seems to be making mistakes here, like he looks like a cop at the bottom of this page, the way he dodges that knife so effortlessly, you see like, oh, this guy is good. <laughs> He's going to be a good fighter. We also meet, Cat- we, we meet Catwoman here, right? Like Catwoman is watching from above. She kind of notices Bruce Wayne in disguise messing up with the pimp and she's sort of curious. Right. And she's being called Selena. So we know it's Catwoman. Because otherwise she would be unrecognizable in this age, right? Like now we recognize this as a look for Catwoman, but... Uh, she's. It's also not called out directly, but she is a dominatrix who's being paid, I think, to beat somebody up for money. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty gritty for a comic book aimed at probably 13-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> she's talking to an unseen client. Shut up, skunk. You know what I hate most about men, skunk? And off panel here, please, Selena, tell me why you hate us so. Like, man, this is, this is yeah. intense. <laughs> For a Frank Miller comic, a little light on the prostitutes, but still. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's pulling back on his normal grittiness. He really knows uh, how to spell sexual desperation, you know? <laughs> yeah. But how many characters are we meeting so quick? Like, again, Z, uh, to your point, like just how much information we're getting. We're meeting Bruce, Gordon, Commissioner, Flass, Holly, Catwoman. It's also the story. We're on page 11, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's- this story doesn't need Catwoman uh, uh, or Holly to be good. I mean, they're great. They add so much to it, but it's like there's already so much in it. And the fact that they like, hey, we got room for a little bit more. And I love on the next page, um, on page 12, where it goes so south. It's like Holly's stabbing Bruce in yeah. the south. But it's just everything that could go wrong goes wrong in this moment. Yeah, right. the person he's-, he's trying to save stabs him in the, <laughs> the thigh. <laughs> Catwoman sees what's going on and she wants to protect Holly. So she leaps into the fray. Uh, We're seeing that she is a formidable acrobat. uh, And, you know, we're creating a character that we're excited to see. 
Yeah, uh, Batman punches her too in the jaw. That's brutal. Uh, and uh, I also love this caption from Bruce. Very good, Bruce. You've really put the fear of God into them, which is a very <laughs> funny uh, reaction to how badly it's going. Um, yeah, so we're just seeing that Catwoman is an intense, uh, powerful character. We also get a little tease um, in the third panel of page 13. Uh, Selena lands on her feet, even though she's been uh, thrown. Yeah. Um, oh, she lands on her on her feet like a, you know, she lands like a cat. And there's a little caption that says another one hissing like a cat. And it's just that kind of little bit of bait, I think, for people who know yeah. what the story is. I think it's, it's like uh, it's having worked on Gotham, you know, th- those moments, you know, you really try hard to to to, to get to that level of of, um, you know, it's not really an Easter egg, but, it, you know, yeah. it gets people's pulses. Oh, I'm excited. I know you came in the, the the last few seasons of Gotham, but how much, I mean, year one must have been an inspiration at some point. Uh, how much did the comic books come up at that point? Or was it just like you guys are in the end game and we're just trying to get our ducks in a row? I mean, I think that we would always see, I mean, there were so many iconic Batman stories. I mean, for me writing for that show, because there were so many things that were not canon and, and I am such a big Batman fan, I had to kind of think of writing it as, we're writing an Elseworlds story mm-hmm. where there's pieces of, you know, iconography and mythology that we can kind of remix. So, you know, there was, you know, a Joker type character and we would sometimes, I mean, there was an episode that I did that was pulled very heavily from Killing Joke. You know, there was some stuff from No Man's Land. So the comic book certainly came up. And I think that you know, we wanted to make a show that was palatable to people who didn't know the mythology, but for people who knew the mythology, there's kind of little winks to the audience. Yeah. Seems fun. Fun challenge. That's the, that, that's the fun challenge of any kind of like licensed property, like big budget thing, you know, you got to appeal to the fans and the newcomers. The function of this fight is that Bruce isn't ready. He blows it. Like, even though he's yeah. a super formidable fighter, he has all these skills like when Catwoman kicks him, he thinks that's good. She's had karate training, but only karate. Like, I guess to make that assessment after five seconds mm-hmm. sort of shows his insane Bruce Wayne or his insane Batman-ness. But he blows it. The cops show up. If he gets caught and his identity gets revealed, it's over. Uh, he didn't stop the guy he was trying to stop. The cops shoot him. The cops shoot him. Um, he's wounded. He's thrown to the back of a car. He ends up having to break out of his handcuffs and cause them to crash, which makes him have to save them because Batman doesn't want to kill anybody. So it's a failure for his first night out, even though yeah. it's this incredibly cool fight sequence where he is in a complete badass at every moment. For his standard of what he wants to execute, he blows it. Yeah, it's also very funny because then I'm um, jumping a bit ahead, but when you get by the time you get to page 16 and you see Bruce barely able to like turn the key to get his car started, Gordon, who just got beat, beat to hell, seems fine. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Gordon is a little bit more ready for this world he's in, even though he's been thrust into it. This also just the Frank Miller writing here on page 16, after Bruce has gotten out of the cop car and back to his car and the nights of failure, just at the, the moment you said, Kevin, hope I didn't do anything stupid getting here, done enough wrong tonight, turn the key, Bruce, it isn't difficult, his hands covered in blood, just a little slippery. I mean, I am so, what a thrilling detail. Mm-hmm. And just like, this book is a masterpiece of bringing detective, like hard, hardcore detective fiction to like a, the superhero world. 
blood uh, and guts and sex and corruption and fighting. And then our heroes uh, pass each other for the first time on page 17. Uh, Gordon driving home from getting his ass beaten, Bruce driving home from b- getting his ass beaten. Bruce is speeding and almost hits Gordon in the on the road. Man, if they had hit each other, end of a franchise right there. <laughs> See, what do you think? Killing both protagonists in issue one, is that is that a good move, you think? The shortest Elseworld story ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're going to reuse everything and just, re, just redraw one panel. And then we'll <laughs> Two gradients. Yeah, just a big the end at the bottom of the page. Somebody recognizes Bruce Wayne, too. There's, there's also civilians driving here. That's Bruce Wayne's car. What's he on? Cocaine. Rich people take cocaine. Saw a special on it. <laughs> A nice little dig at the class war in, in Gotham, that there's poor people who resent Bruce Wayne. Uh, Bruce is thinking, fear, I have to make them afraid, which is such a great thing, too. And Gordon's going to get a little redemption here. The same night, right after having been beaten up by four guys with baseball bats, he knows where the cops hang out, and he shows up to get his revenge. I love this last frame of Gordon on page 17, this last panel. <clears throat> his eyes are in shadow, but you can still see his glasses. Yeah. Totally badass. In the, um, in the, some of the trades and definitely in the hardcover absolute edition, there's, um, you can see Mazzuccelli's inks for this page and they're really beautiful even before the colors come on. I mean, the moodiness, the shadows, the composition here, we are in classic film noir mode here. Gordon waits till it's only till Flask comes out, gets into his car, trails behind him, works him off the road at gunpoint, gets Flask out of the car, throws him a bat, and wants to have a one-on-one fight just with him and Flask. Gets him to toss his gun down so they don't. Neither of them have guns. I love that he says. I mean, the last two. The, I can just read them, but the last yeah. two panels, Gordon and Flask facing off, and Gordon's voiceover is: "He's big, Green Beret training." It's been 15 years since I had to take out a Green Beret. And the next panel is Gordon throwing his bat to Flass, <laughs> even so he deserves a handicap. Oh, it is I mean, so badass. It is so yeah. badass. And he's been beaten up minute, just an hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> but I get, and so Flass somehow, wordlessly, they, I mean, oh. Flass has to recognize that it's Gordon. Mm-hmm. So here they are, yeah. partners. Somehow that's wordlessly communicating. I know it was you who beat me up. I'm here for my revenge. Fight me like a man. And, and Flass accepts, accepts this duel and goes at it. Flass is drunk, obviously, because he's been out with his buddies. But uh, uh, Gordon takes him down hard. I do just enough to keep him out of the hospital, which is what they did to him. I don't crack his skull. I don't crush his larynx. I don't break his ribs or punch my hand through his chest. Like, just the brutal details. Yeah. <laughs> also implying he could have. That he's like completely in control and then leaves him naked and handcuffed in the woods and then drives away. And how about somebody read this last panel on page 19? It is so awesome. Uh, but he'll know and he'll stay away from Barbara. Thanks, Flath. You've shown me what it takes to be a cop in Gotham City. And so here we are at the end. We're reaching the end of the first issue and Gordon has gone from trying to play by the rules and show that he's a good cop. And now, now he knows this is what I'm up against. I have to beat up my own partner and leave him naked and handcuffed in the woods to protect my family. And he goes, thanks for that knowledge. It's like, whoo, we are, we are heading into a great story. Here's where Stan Lee would put a caption, <laughs> before you think this is a Commissioner Gordon comic, <laughs> let's get back to Batman. <laughs> right, right. Oh, even, even, for, even though there are a huge number of words on some of these pages, Stan, it's not, Stan would double them. 
uh, <laughs> with captions. And then uh, we see Bruce has crashed into a car at home. Yeah. We've got a lot of car crashes in this issue. Yeah, I mean, he's in such bad shape. He just crashed into the other car that he owns or one of the many other cars he owns. He's sitting in a big, giant, empty room, but this not calling for Alfred. And this mirrors Detective Comics 27, where like the very first appearance ever of Batman, where Bruce Wayne is by a window and decides to be a bat. Uh, he's doing like the modern dramatic version of that moment, the three-page version of that one panel, yeah. uh, where he's sitting in his big chair by a window, defeated, trying to think what he did wrong. How can I scare the criminals enough that, I, that what happened tonight won't happen again? And we have a reminiscence of his origin and his parents being murdered, the now iconic crime alley shot of young Bruce Wayne kneeling at the, the bodies of his parents, the internal existential crisis of the current Bruce Wayne knowing that he failed, and then the last page, the arrival of a mythic superhero figure, the bat crashes through the window, which what should in real life would be a stupid moment here presented as a, the drama of a, the most intense horror film. It, and it gives it almost a supernatural feeling because that bat just comes in and stares at him. Like maybe he's out of his mind. I don't know if that's really happening or like it's happening and it's just, he is Batman. He's always been Batman. It, this bat is telling him, which is I think how Frank Miller is telling it. Origins are so tough. I feel like everybody does a super story. How do you handle the origin? Like, see, I feel like that's the story that gets told a million times, but it's also essential. I mean, I feel like in, as a Spider-Man fan, every time I see a new incarnation of Spider-Man, it's like, well, are they going to tell the origin or not? And if so, yeah. how do they make it new? How do you let the newcomers know what's going on, but you don't tire out the fans who have seen it a million times? It's such a challenge. But It's tough. And we probably killed, we probably killed, Thomas and Martha Wayne. Yeah. Hundreds of times. <laughs> yeah, right. How many times have we made these poor people go through this moment? Yeah. But the way they yeah. do it here is, you know, this is in the mid 80s mm-hmm. and Frank Miller is gridifying the Batman story. So we're seeing a super dramatic film noir, Dave Mazzuchelli cinematography version of the, of the Batman origin. And it's awesome. I wouldn't mind seeing Adam West narrate this issue. <laughs> Uh, there'd be something very fun about that. <laughs> That'd be a real art project. Without the, like any changes to dialogue, but just Adam West tone. The, the ultimate campy Batman doing the yeah. most gritty Batman origin yeah, yeah. story. Yeah. And we end with him realizing he's got to become a bat. I, I shall Robert. become a bat. Isn't that what's I, said in the original Detective Comics 27? Uh, I don't know. I think so. And I love this last panel. He just picks up the bell, and you know that he's going to ring for Alfred. Yeah, now he's ready. Yeah. Yeah, because he, he wasn't picking it up before, but it's like, once I'm ready, it's like, no, now I know what to do. Because otherwise, he'd rather die. He'd rather die if he doesn't know how he's going to do this. And now that he knows, he's, he's okay living. So we open with Jim Gordon and Batman arriving at Gotham, one by train, one by plane, and we finish with both of them knowing what they have to do for the battles they want to win. Yeah, that is great. It's an incredible issue of comics, you know? It and just it was really published just as a normal issue. You'd go to the newsstand, that was like whatever issue it was, Batman yeah. issue 427 or whatever. Yeah, Superman is fighting Toy Man over here, and in this issue, <laughs> one of the greatest Batman comics ever written. Z, thank you so much for picking that issue. What, what do you think, having just gone through it with us? Where, where, what are you feeling? I mean, it's great to be able to talk about something that I love in such detail, you know? 
And there's things that I noticed that I hadn't noticed before. And, you know, it was really fun to share the things I, I, that I love about it. It's funny when I was, so when I was first getting into comics and I was drawing a lot of comics and I was probably still when I was about 13, um, Frank Miller was signing, uh, did a Sin City signing at the Million Year Picnic in Harvard Square. And I brought my portfolio to go and get my, uh, to, to show it to him and get my book signed. So I had him sign my year one, my Dark Knight Returns, uh, my Sin City. He was so nice. He looked at my entire portfolio. He gave me notes. He told me like things that he liked about it, things that I could work on. And, uh, you know, my mom had brought me there. And as I was walking away, he just kind of like, like indicated to my mom. And he was like, um, actually, he's way too young to be reading Sin, Sin City. It's, uh, <laughs> um, uh, so that was the time that Frank Miller narked on me. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's true. I agree with him on that. He's I mean, probably right. Good. He was right. I mean, like, there's multiple people getting their heads cut off. There's people <laughs> eating oh, other people. It's a, I mean, he's 100% correct. Yeah, yeah. I could not have been reading that comic. Yeah. Uh, this comic I have here, this trade, I got this signed by Mazzuchelli. I'm going to show you guys oh, nice. on our video chat, even though you can't see it on the, on the, in the podcast. But I went to New York Comic Con some years ago, and Mazzuchelli was there, and I had him sign it. It was, it was great. Yeah. I think he teaches at, at maybe at SVA right now, School of Visual Arts. Oh, wow. Okay. I know he's been a teacher for a while. I mean, he's a master. He certainly, he certainly earned the right to be teaching people how to do this. Yeah. He's uh, one of, if not the best. I mean, he's so, so, so good. Well, Z, we've kept you on a little bit beyond our time, so let's wrap this up so we don't, we don't, we don't use any more of your time. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You guys we are thrilled to have a creator and a real passionate fan of comics to talk about it. What a terrific choice! So, Kev, let's do our promo code once again and and see if we can get people to check out some of the, some of Z's company's comics. Yeah, go to tkopresents.com uh, and you screw it 20 to get a discount. I'm not actually sure how much of a discount, but it's it is 20%, some yeah. 20%. 20%. That's significant. 20%, guys. Come on. That's a significant discount. Uh, oh, don't let us sm- down. Please have no, we, do, we don't want nobody to use our discount code. Let's, <laughs> for, the, for the dignity of our podcast, somebody go right now and buy something. Uh, and, but uh, yeah, there's tons of great options there. Uh, so check out some of those books. Yeah. Uh, and, and if it will, you know, to link on our podcast, we can yep, also, we, yep, they give yep. us a direct link. We can also post. We'll post that link in the comments of the yeah. description of this podcast. And uh, you can email us at screwitspidey at Gmail. Our Instagram is screwitcomics. Please check that out. You know, rate and review us and all that good stuff. And um, see, thanks so much. Thank you guys. Bye, everybody. Bye. Screw it, screw it. We're just going to is Will Himes, and I am a ghostwriter, meaning I write other people's books for them. And I have a podcast called I Will Write Your Book, which are recordings of my meetings with my eccentric clients, such as a woman blocked after one sentence of a children's book about her dogs, a romance novelist who dislikes sex, and a man proud of having sampled everything in his local grocery store. This podcast has been described as fully improvised, played by some of the best comedians on the planet Earth. Hey, that's pretty good. That's I Will Write Your Book on Campfire Media. Campfire.